0: All right, so uh, this podcast does contain themes of murder and things of that nature, so if you don't like murder or crime or disappearances or anything like that, then you should probably uh, go click on something else. When you think of grave robbing, what do you imagine it's like? Do you picture hunchbacked ghouls in raggedy cloaks with dirty faces, digging away on a dark and stormy night? Do they pry jewelry from the bones of the long dead, washing them in muddy rainwater and holding them up in the moonlight? Am I close? It sounds almost romantic when you picture it that way, but it doesn't exactly get points for realism. If you're anything like me, my sympathies if so then you might be interested in learning what the real thing is actually like. If so, then here's a quick little guide for your nocturnal adventures. The first thing that you should know is that we don't dig up old graves. Only amateurs go for people who haven't died recently, and they never do it twice. You have to hit freshly buried spots so the soil is still easy to dig up. It's still a lot of work, but it's a lot better than trying to get through six feet of solid ground. The second thing is that we don't dig when it's raining. Cloudy is good, but rain means mud, and mud means mess. You'll be five minutes in before you realize that you're standing in a puddle and your socks are soggy. Then there's climbing out of the hole, of course. Best to avoid that issue by waiting for clearer skies. And if you don't listen to me, at least wear waterproof boots. The third, and by far the most important thing, is to knock before opening the coffin. I cannot stress enough how essential this is to the process. You never know what's on the other side. And it may just be sleeping, or waiting. I've been on a few trips with partners, something I'd recommend if you want the digging process to go by quicker, and I've seen them make this mistake firsthand. My god, it's always a mess. And just in case you think it might be dangerous, it's a good idea to bring something to defend yourself with, or at least someone you can outrun. Last year, I spent six months participating in what I was told was a psychological experiment. I found an ad in my local paper looking for imaginative people looking to make good money. And since it was the only ad that week I was remotely qualified for, I gave them a call and we arranged an interview. They told me that all I would have to do is stay in a room alone with sensors attached to my head to read my brain activity. And while I was there, I would visualize a double of myself. They called it my tolpa. It seemed easy enough, and I agreed to do it as soon as they told me how much I would be paid, and the next day I began. They brought me to a simple room and gave me a bed, then attached sensors to my head and hooked them into a little black box on the table beside me. They talked me through the process of visualizing my double again, and explained that if I got bored or restless instead of moving around I should visualize my double moving around or try to interact with him and so on. The idea was to keep him with me the entire time I was in the room. I had trouble with it for the first few days. It was more controlled than any sort of daydreaming I'd done before. I'd imagine my double for a few minutes, then grow distracted. But by the fourth day, I could manage to keep him present for the entire six hours. They told me I was doing very well. The second week, they gave me a different room with wall-mounted speakers. They told me they wanted to see if I could still keep the tuba with me, In spite of distracting stimuli, the music was discordant, ugly, and unsettling, and it made the process a little more difficult, but I managed nonetheless. The next week they played even more unsettling music, punctuated with shrieks, feedback loops, and what sounded like an old school modem dialing up, and guttural voices speaking some foreign language. I just laughed it off. I was a pro by then. After about a month, I started to get bored. To liven things up, I started interacting with my doppelganger. We'd have conversations or play rock-paper-scissors. I'd imagine him juggling, or breakdancing, or whatever caught my fancy. I'd ask the researchers if my foolishness would adversely affect their study, but they encouraged me. So we played, and communicated, and that was fun for a while, and then it got a little strange. I was telling him about my first date one day, and he corrected me. I'd said my date was wearing a yellow top, and he told me it was a green one. I thought about it for a second, and realized he was right. Creeped me out. And after my shift that day, I talked to the researchers about it. You're using the thought form to access your subconscious, they explained. You knew on some level that you were wrong, and you subconsciously corrected yourself. What had been creepy was suddenly cool. I was talking to my subconscious. It took some practice, but I found that I could question my torpor and access all sorts of memories. I could make it quote whole pages from books i'd read once years before or things i was taught and immediately forgot in high school it was awesome that was the first time i started calling up my double outside of the research center not often at first but i was so used to imagining him by now that it almost seemed odd not to see him so whenever i was bored i'd visualize my double Eventually I started doing it almost all the time. It was amusing to take him along like an invisible friend. I imagined him when I was hanging out with my friends or visiting my mum. I even brought him along on a date once. I didn't need to speak aloud to him, so I was able to carry out conversations with him and no one was the wiser. I know that sounds strange, but it was fun. Not only was he a walking repository of everything I knew and everything I'd forgotten, but he also seemed more in touch with me than I did at times. He had an uncanny grasp of the miniature of body language that I didn't even realize I was picking up on. For example, I thought the date I brought him along on was going badly. But he pointed out she was laughing a little too hard at my jokes and leaning towards me as I spoke and a bunch of other subtle clues I, was, I wasn't consciously picking up on. I listened, and let's just say the date went very well. By the time I'd been at the research centre for four months, he was with me constantly. The researchers approached me one day after my shift and asked me if I'd stopped visualising him. I denied it. They seemed pleased. I silently asked my double if he knew what prompted that, But either shrugged it off so did i i withdrew a little from the world at that point i was having trouble relating to people it seemed to me that they were so confused and unsure of themselves while i had a manifestation of myself to confer with it made socializing awkward nobody else seemed aware of the reasons behind their actions why some things made them mad and others made them laugh They didn't know what moved them. But I did, or at least, I could ask myself and get an answer. A friend confronted me one evening. He pounded at the door until I answered it and came in fuming and swearing up a storm. You haven't answered my calls when I called you in fucking weeks, you dick, he yelled. What's your fucking problem? I was about to apologize to him and probably would have offered to hit the bars with him that night but my tulpa grew suddenly furious. Hit him, it said, and before I knew what I was doing, I had. I heard his nose break. He fell to the floor and came up swinging, and we beat each other up and down my apartment. I was more furious than I had ever been, and I was not merciful. I knocked him to the ground and gave him two savage kicks to the ribs. And that was when he fled. Hunched over and sobbing. The police were by a few minutes later and I told them that he had been the instigator and since he wasn't around to refute me they let me off with a warning. My torpor was grinning the entire time. We spent the night groaning about my victory and sneering over how badly I'd beaten my friend. It wasn't until the next morning when I was checking out my black eye and cut lip in the mirror, that I remembered what had set me off. My double was the one who'd grown furious. Not me. I'd been feeling guilty and a little ashamed. But he goaded me into a vicious fight with a concerned friend. He was present, of course, and knew my thoughts. You don't need him anymore. You don't need anyone else he told me, and I felt my skin crawl. I explained all this to the researchers who employed me, but they just laughed it off. You can't be scared of something that you're imagining, one told me. My double stood beside him and nodded his head, then smirked at me. I tried to take their words to heart, but over the next few days I found myself growing more and more anxious around my torpor and it seemed that he was changing. He looked taller and more menacing. His eyes twinkled with mischief, and I saw malice in his constant smile. No job was worth losing my mind over, I decided. If he was out of control, I'd put him down. I was so used to him at that point that visualizing was an automatic process. So I started trying my damnedness not to visualize him. It took a few days, but it started to work somewhat. I could get rid of him for hours at a time, but every time he came back, he seemed worse. His skin seemed ashen, his teeth more pointed. He hissed and gibbered and threatened and swore. The discordant music I'd been listening to for months seemed to accompany him everywhere. Even when I was at home, I'd relax and slip up, no longer concentrating on not seeing him. And there he'd be, and that howling noise with him. I was still visiting the research center and spending my six hours there. I needed the money, and I thought that they weren't aware that I was not actively visualizing my torpor. I was wrong. After my shift one day, about five and a half months in, two impressively men grabbed me and restrained me and someone in a lab coat jabbed a hypodermic needle into me. I woke up from my stupor back in the room, strapped into the bed, music blaring with my doppelganger standing over me cackling. He hardly looked human anymore. His features were twisted, his eyes were sunken in their sockets and filmed over like corpses. He was much taller than me, but hunched over his hands were twisted and the fingernails were like talons. He was, in short, fucking terrifying. I tried to will him away, but I just couldn't seem to concentrate. He giggled and tapped the IV in my arm. I thrashed in my restraints as best as I could, but could hardly move at all. They're pumping you full of the good shit, I think. How's the mind? All fuzzy? he leaned closer and closer as he spoke. I gagged. His breath smelled like spoiled meat. I tried to focus, but couldn't banish him. The next few weeks were terrible. Every so often, someone in a doctor's coat would come in and inject me with something, or force-feed me a pill. They kept me dizzy and unfocused, and sometimes left me hallucinating or delusional. My thought form was still present, constantly mocking. He interacted with, or perhaps caused, my delusions. I hallucinated that my mother was there, scolding me. And then he cut her throat and her blood showered me. It was so real that I could taste it. The doctors never spoke to me. I begged at times, screamed, hurled invectives, demanded answers... They never spoke to me. They may have talked to my torpor, my personal monster. I'm not sure. I was so doped and confused that it may have just been more delusion. But I remember them talking with him. I grew convinced that he was the real one and that I was the thought form. He encouraged that line of thought at times. Mocked me at others. Another thing that I pray was a delusion. He could touch me, more than that he could hurt me, he'd poke and prod at me if he felt I wasn't paying another attention to him. Once he grabbed my testicles and squeezed them until I told him I loved him. Another time, he slashed my forearm with one of his talons. I still have a scar, most days I can convince myself that I injured myself and I just hallucinated that he was responsible most days. Then one day, while he was telling me a story about how he was going to gut everyone I loved, starting with my sister, he paused. A querulous look crossed his face and he reached out and touched my head, like my mother used to when I was feverish. He stayed still for a long moment and then smiled. All thoughts are creative, he told me then walked out of the door. Three hours later, I was given an injection and passed out. I awoke unrestrained, shaking. I made my way to the door and found it unlocked. I walked out into the empty hallway and then ran. I stumbled more than once, but I made it down the stairs and out into the lot behind the building. There, I collapsed, weeping like a child. I knew I had to keep moving, but I couldn't manage it. I got home eventually, I don't remember how, I locked the door and shoved the dresser against it, took a long shower and slept for a day and a half. Nobody came for me in the night, and nobody came the next day, or the one after that. It was over. I'd had spent a week locked in that room, but it felt like a century. I'd withdrawn so much from my life beforehand. That nobody had even known I was missing. The police didn't find anything. The research centre was empty when they searched it. the paper trail fell apart. The names I had given were aliases. Even the money I received was apparently untraceable. I recovered as much as one can. I don't leave the house much. And I have panic attacks when I do. I cry a lot. I don't sleep much, and my nightmares are terrible. It's over, I tell myself. I survived. I used the concentration those bastards taught me to convince myself. It works, sometimes. Not today though. Three days ago, I got a phone call from my mother. There's been a tragedy. My sister's the latest victim in a spree of killings, the police say. The perpetrator mugs his victims. And then he gets them. The funeral was this afternoon. It was a lovely service as a funeral can be, I suppose. I was a little distracted though. All I could hear was music coming from somewhere distant. Discordant. Unsettling stuff that sounds like feedback. And shrieking. And a modem dialing up. I hear it still, a little louder now. The Troll, written by Max lockdown We dredged something up from deep water. It turned out to still be alive. Partly alive. Something like alive. I wanted to explain how it looked, but every time I thought about how to describe it, I got the worst mental block. Everything went foggy, and my head started to hurt. Even when I remembered how it spilled out onto the deck with thousands of dead fish, I was overcome with a sensation of nausea that left me gasping for air. That's why, once it stopped thrashing, yes, that's how it moved, by thrashing, I remember how it knocked over a bunch of equipment I asked one of the guys to start taking pictures. Not a single one came out right. They were all blurred beyond repair and dotted with multicolored splotches. So all I have is my memory. While I couldn't picture how it looked, I knew it was nothing like I'd ever seen before. Nothing like any of us had seen. All of this happened last week. The creature is gone, From the best we can remember, it hurled itself back over the side of the boat. None of us are certain of that, mind you. It's just the best explanation we can come up with together. All five of us started getting sick after that day. I told everyone it's just a flu, that we were in close proximity all day, every day in the cold and the rain and wind. If anyone's gonna get sick, it would be us. But deep down, I didn't think that was the case. My teeth had started to loosen. There was blood in the sink when I brushed them. We went about our business and hauled up our catches, brought them to shore and went back out grey waves met the grey sky on the horizon and my ears had grown numb from the endless white noise of the sea. Two days ago Vernon jumped overboard, the four of us were working at the stern and Vern was at the bow. We never saw him go in and he never came back up. Under any other circumstances we would have radioed the coastguard we would have been devastated by the loss of our colleague and friend. But a mood unlike anything I've experienced come over us. We had to go ahead, forward into the cold North Atlantic. At night, my dreams were vivid yet abstract, colours with shapes and curves, but no edges, no lines. All the while, a voice was singing to me. Yesterday, Amal and Billy held hands and jumped off the port side of the boat. Gervaso and I watched them go. We didn't say a word to one another. We just went back to our respective areas of the vessel. We travelled a good couple hundred miles further out to sea that day. Last night, as I slept, I poked my tongue around a few holes in my gums where my teeth had fallen out. I pressed against the loose ones and a few fell back against my throat. I remember the feeling as I swallowed them. My dreams were full of song and colour. Opening my eyes to the grey morning made me want to go back to sleep. Gervaiso embraced me after breakfast and stood at the bow of the ship. He made three deep splits on each side of his neck, then toppled into the water. The last thing he said before he cut himself was, I'm going to hear them sing. Today, by mid-morning, all my teeth had fallen out. I looked at my new smile in the mirror. It was inhuman, benthic, like the mouth of a strange pink fish with the boat on autopilot, I stumbled to my bed and began a nap. It was short, but full of the song and colour I'd hoped for. There, swimming inside the fountain of shimmering iridescence, was the creature we'd seen. Still can't describe it, but my feeling of discomfort while trying to recall it is gone. All gone. In fact, the thought of it carries a beacon of welcome and hope. Ever since opening my eyes after the nap, I can still hear the singing. It's coming from far below the boat, miles and miles beneath the icy ocean. As I look out and see the grey all around me, I feel starved for colour. As I reach out and feel the icy wind buffet me. I feel deprived of warmth. I know what I have to do. I know where I have to go. At the bottom of this water, I can find what is serenading me. All I have to do is jump.